Welcome to A Matter of Music. I'm Don Wisner Johnson. And I'm Beth Wisner Jansen. And we're here to help provide ideas, tools, and education to help you master this crazy business of music. We're excited today to have Ojo Taylor with us. Hi. Hello. He is a friend of ours um, who you are going to be excited to hear his story and to hear what he does. And he has a lot of information to offer us. Um, Please go to amatteromusic.com. Um, there's several things that we offer there. Beth? We have class coming up uh, on uh, syncing, and it's about a five-week course, and the price is pretty low. And it's a very small class, so a lot of uh, individual attention. We also have podcasts. If you are listening to, to this um, through Spotify or somewhere like that, please like it. Um, we also are on YouTube, so you can find us there if you'd like to see what the cool background Joey has right now. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, and so subscribe there and you can, we'll let you know when we get a uh, new podcast coming up. We also do consultation, um, either Don or I, or both of us together, if you need that. If you have contracts, you just need somebody to kind of go over, or if you're uh, needing some guidance in certain areas of your career, um, look at our LinkedIn and look at what we do here. And we're happy to help. We're here to help. Yes. A brand new thing we're doing is lunch and listen. Every two weeks, um, you can submit music and Beth and I will go over those for sync possibilities, production, letting you know where that might, you know, what sorts of places you might be able to get your music placed, those kinds of things. We're really enjoying that. We've had a lot of people in there and it's, um, it's really um, a fun thing to do. And those are so usually on Fridays. Check our website. Those are on Fridays at noon. Okay, so I'm going to introduce Joey Taylor. Ojo, Joey, Joe, Joseph. If you're searching for him, you might find him under all of those things. He's got what's in a name. What's in a name? Well, it depends on what you're doing and who you are and who you're talking to, I think sometimes. But so Joey is the founder, principal songwriter, producer, keyboard player for the rock group Undercover from the 1980s, was a Southern California punk rock band. Well, started in the 1980s. Started in the 1980s, they're still doing stuff. They just re-released one of their uh, one of their records last year. Uh, he's the founder and general manager of Brainstorm Artists International slash Innocent Media, a production company and record label distributed by Sony Music and Word Records in the U.S. and by international distributors and licensees all over the world. Um, he's toured worldwide. Um, I think I read you were doing a couple hundred dates at one point a year. No? Yeah, we counted one year. It was over 250, actually. Yeah, that's kind of that kind of blows my Insane, mind. Insane, yeah. Yeah, he uh, has produced or executive produced over 100 full-length recordings. This guy knows what he is doing, and because he knows what he's doing, and he's very highly educated. Here he goes. He has an MBA from UCLA, an MM in theory and composition from Cal State Fullerton. I think Joey has been going to school as long as I have known him, and I have known him for quite a while. <laughs> And then so about 13 years ago, he got an offer uh, to start teaching. And he is currently a professor at James Madison University in Virginia. He teaches history of rock, songwriting, artist management, legal aspects of the music industry, which is a class I really want to take, marketing of recorded music, entrepreneurship in the music industry, and music publishing. Yes, he knows a lot of so, stuff. You're a busy man. <laughs> I, I want do all that at once. 
<laughs> I want to say that I was in a band in the 80s, uh, Crumbacher. And so I'm going to uh, tell you all how Joey and I first met. Um, our band opened for uh, Undercover. And there were some other bands there in 1983, going into 1984 at a New Year's Eve concert. The next year, about six weeks later, one of our songs from our songwriter and uh, Steve Kronbacher uh, was put on a, a compilation album. And then um, I believe Word Records wanted to distribute for our band. And so they decided instead of doing an EP for us after that, they were gonna do an eight songs. And Ojo produced our record. And I talked to Steve this week, just back and forth about how that all happened because I had heard it before, but um, Joey had heard our band leader, he had heard his demo tapes and was interested um, from the start. So if it was not for Joey, I do not know if I would have been on the path I was on. <laughs> so you are very instrumental in my life, Joey. And I, I also need to say that being in the studio with, with Ojo, he was a little bit older. I knew he had been doing things already, um, a little bit intimidating to this young um, girl from <laughs> grown up overseas. I had come and, and um, he would say things to us like, do you guys really think you can do that? Like vocally and <laughs> we would all go to the side and go, do you think that means we can't? What? <laughs> Are we and not supposed to? We're try it. So anyway, you pushed us, Joey, and we flew out the door, flew the coop, and Crumbacher went on to do four albums and tour as well. So um, thank you for that. I don't know if I've ever said that to you, but I know. I just, as you're saying it, I'm realizing how he really helped uh, me and you both, the direction of our life. Yeah. Very true. Crazy. Very true. So, so Joe, um, we met you then, but I know you were, you were doing things way before that. One thing I just want to ask from the very get-go, how did you get started in music? For me, I started playing piano at probably five years old and just started on a path because my parents were into music. Tell us how that started for you. Actually, well, let me start by saying that I think you guys, I'm happy to have been part of your lives and to have you part of mine as well. That was one of the most fun records and easiest actually that I've ever worked on just because you you all and including Stephen who who really had a sense of the technology that was not just in existence at the time but was emerging at the time had a forward vision for it but um you guys absolutely would have taken off one way or the other anyway true talent always rises but I am happy to to have kind of been the one to, to work on your first record um, but I had a similar experience um, to yours where my mother started me on piano lessons when I was five. And way back then, piano lessons meant that you were pretty much studying classical music, doing scales, and, and which is fantastic, but, you know, other kinds of exercises and stuff. And I was funny, I was thinking about this the other day, my poor piano teachers all the way through junior high and, and then into early high school when I finally stopped, I just put them through the ringers because I really wasn't interested in learning that kind of piano. And I was much more into pop music, popular culture, and, and songs. 
I wish I had known back then that that could actually be a focus, a direction of my life, you know, to, to um, just advocate for myself and say, hey, you know who I am is I'm a songwriter. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to learn. But I didn't have enough insight to know that that was even an option. But uh, so stopped altogether. And then uh, through high school, really wasn't musically involved much at all until uh, the end of high school. I think just after I graduated, uh, Jim Nicholson and I had been friends. We went to the same school, had a lot of the same classes. We'd known each other for a number of years. Somehow heard that I had taken piano lessons once upon a time and he was in a band and did I want to sit in on keyboards with them. And I said, well, okay, but I don't really, I don't have any equipment. I don't really know anything about being in a band. So we, we actually were setting up in his parents' living room and I was banging out chords on, on his mom's grand piano. Uh, we were playing songs like Highway Star by Deep Purple. I'm banging on this, you know, nine foot grand piano. <laughs> it was, we were awful, just awful. But, <laughs> You know, that's every, that, that's where everyone, that's where you have to start. You have to start at awful. And, and if you don't, you're one of the lucky ones, but we weren't one of the lucky ones. So <laughs> for us, it was, it was all about doing the same things that everybody did, learn how to play songs, listen over and over to records. You know, back then it was all on vinyl and cassette and you rewind it or move the needle back, back, back over and over and over again to figure out what, what, what is that chord? What's that bass line doing? What, what's those lyrics there? What's that vocal arrangement? What are the harmonies doing? That drum fill, you know, you just deconstruct songs by listening over and over and over. And that way you learn how music works. And, um, you know, so the, uh, John Lennon did the same thing and actually talks about this on tape on his, uh, he had a, a jukebox that he kind of narrated through. And I have video of him talking on this jukebox while Sting is kind of narrating this. and. Lennon talks about how they did the same thing with Elvis Presley and Carl Perkins records and uh, all those rockabilly artists. This is how you learn songs. And so we were doing that and we would build our repertoire of cover songs and play high school dances. And then uh, around 1976, I guess it was when the whole Calvary Chapel thing was blowing up, we, we got involved in that and decided we should start writing original songs, which was another whole learning curve. Well, how do you do that? You know, but at least we had some tools in our toolbox from learning cover songs that how, what kind of chord progressions work and arrangements and choruses and verses and pre-choruses and bridges and all of that stuff. So we started playing and did that for a few years. I, I can't stress how important it was for us to be kind of near a ground zero, near a hub of musical activity. And at the, at the time, uh, it, you know, it was Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa and there were, we were close to Newport Beach and, and there were a lot of artists and musicians there. And we caught the attention somehow of Maranatha Music. They asked us if we would like to record, uh, they wanted to help us out and, and um, wanted to uh, invest in an independent record for us. And that, so our first record came out, recorded literally in our rehearsal space on a mobile truck, 24 track at least, but it was on a mobile truck. And um, four or five of the songs on that record, I think were recorded live at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa on that same mobile truck. Mm -hmm. 
and we mixed it all down and, and it was low budget, minimalist and, and, but it was at the right time at the right place and the stuff, the records were just flying out of the trunks of our car. So that's the, the short version of kind of um, how we got started. A lot, right. of, a lot of curves and stuff along the as, way. As you and Jim started writing the music, were, did you, you said it, you really feel like you were coming into your own when you started songwriting. Was that the time you really felt that and you knew, hey, this, I can do this. Like, I love this. I mean, was that, did that hit you then or was it later? You know, uh, so I'll tell a story that very few people know. So I'll, I'll tell it to you, you guys. And then, um, you can do with it what you will. But before Undercover, Jim and I were in a band called J.C. Rose. And this is where we started. This is the first band that we actually started writing original songs for. And, and the songs were all kind of prog rock and really awful, just awful stuff. But um, some, some of the stuff was okay, you know, but it, but it wasn't, you know, it was just okay. Uh, at the same time, we were going to the vineyard, at the, which was at the time Calvary Chapel, Yorba Linda, because that was the closest church to where we lived. And that, of course, was pastored by John Wimber, whose son, Chris Wimber, was in another band called Boaz. Mm. Now, uh, Boaz also had uh, Rick Alba in the group. And um, let's see, Ray Hurston. My friend who, Joe Marciano. Right. Um, and let's see, there was... Um, Oh, Danny Pavlis, Danny Pavlis, who was on who was Undercover's first drummer. Oh. So there were Boaz and J.C. Rose, and we were doing all these gigs, and Boaz was kind of harder rock, and Undercover was kind of more prog rock. We had Uncle Dave in our band, and um, and and Jim, of course. And, and actually, our drummer was Clark Edmund, who most people don't realize was the drummer in Idle Cure later. But he's also my former brother-in-law. So there's all these kind of weird connections. <laughs> so JC Rose and Boaz are playing all these gigs. And sometimes there's more of us than there are people in the audience. And John <laughs> Wimber sent us both into the studio, Whitefield Studio, which was Maranatha's studio and a 24-track state-of-the-art joint. And we each recorded demos, Boaz and JC Rose did. And Neither of those bands went anywhere. And then we kind of reshuffled members and Chris Wimber went on to form Lifesavers and Rick Alba joined us and Danny, Rick and Danny came over and Jim and I started Undercover. Um, so I'm, I can't remember what your question is, but I'm, I'm filling in some of the blanks there. But I think, oh, okay, I now I remember. So it wasn't until Undercover where we just decided, Jim and I, like, we've got to stop writing this you know, this odd meter, 20 minute musical journeys that really, uh, you know, people are three minutes in, they're digging through their coolers, looking for their next bottle of beer or whatever. Just, Was it that we are not yes, away. we are yeah. not yes moment? Yeah, we're not yes, and we're not Genesis, <laughs> and we're not King Crimson, okay? So we had that come to Jesus moment, and, and we started just writing songs with with actual choruses and, and hooks and, and stuff like that. So that's, I think, it, when we first started getting come, excited about it. Your come to Jesus comment makes me laugh because you, what was one of your biggest songs? God rules, God rules. Yeah. <laughs> Which well, that was on the second record. Uh, that was even on the second record. But, you know, you're saying, you're, you did, you did. So that was a definite um, style moment change for you guys where you thought, 
okay, this isn't all working. This is what we need to do, which I know in some bands I've done, it's definitely and, that And way. when you did that, you felt like you kind of came into your comfort zone. I mean, you were better at it. You were more comfortable doing it or did you have to work? How did that, you know, well, did you it, have is, to just... it is a, you know, change in thinking about mm -hmm. how you think about music. But let me put some timeline to this. So Jim and I started going to Calvary around 76. And, and uh, you know, this is about the time punk and new wave start showing up in the, in the national musical dialogue. And so we were being influenced at the same time by uh, those styles of music, B-52s and X and, and all these local punk bands that Southern California had. So uh, we were, and I really have to, part of the reason why I wanted to tell you the Lifesavers Undercover story is because I owe Chris Wimber, may he rest in peace, a debt of gratitude for, uh, we had many discussions at his house and, and actually on the pier fishing late at night at Newport Beach about the direction the music was taking at that time and how that was going to impact his songwriting. And so he was a real influence on me and, and, and so, yes, it was a process. It wasn't like we just woke up one morning and said, hey, that's not working, let's try something else. It was an evolution of sorts. And, and then when we finally did, uh, you know, at the end of J.C. Rose, we started actually writing some of those songs. There's a song called Look It Up, I think that's on our second record, but was actually a pre-undercover song that, that mm -hmm. we had been performing as J.C. Rose and maybe a couple others as well, but we knew we had to pare down the, the music, be more concise, be more uh, rememberable, singable, write hooks, write choruses, uh, shorter verses, keep the songs to three, three and a half minutes long. So yeah, it was just this evolutionary process of how we think about music and how people listen to music and what its role should be and also in the context of what was going on in Christian music at that time, which was still stuck in, in pretty much 1970s, early 70s, you know, with all due respect to these guys, Mustard Seed Faith and Sweet Comfort and all those groups, you know, so there was an adaptation and evolution of what we were trying to do and it came over a period of time. Yeah. But yes, that's when we started getting really excited about what we were doing, you know, because nobody else was doing it in Christian right. music. And so, yes. of course, that's yeah. not why we did it either. Hey, no one's doing that. Why don't we give it a try? You know, it's just, um, this no. is just the way we no. ended up. Yeah, I know. I know because my band was in there because of you. Um, they call, you know, there's some people who will say that we were pioneering of styles and, and different things in the, but we never knew that <laughs> as we were doing it. You might have thought, well, this is different than anything else in Christian music, but you didn't really think that your life and your band was going to be in that role, I right. guess. We were just doing it, you know, and it was yeah. fun. And I will say I was always a rebel. So I was going to say there's a little bit of a rebellion thing going on where, where all of those bands back in that time that group of bands from Southern California, those are the ones I know, were a little bit rebellious in that pushing, pushing it a little bit. There was a little yeah. bit of that. I liked, I liked pushing it and I liked the band we were with. By your artists, I mean, that's what you do. Right. Well, well and- The interesting and, thing is that, you know, looking back, you're right, um, Don, we, we, we weren't smart enough to know the impact that we were gonna have down the line or that we were gonna have any at all. We're just doing what we did, just like you guys. 
having said that, um, well, I don't know that that that's I'll just leave it there. I I, I think you just do what you do, and and you don't know where the where it's going to you, you don't know what's going to happen downstream. Oh, I know what I was going to say. You, this idea of rebel being rebellious. Um, somebody pulled me aside once because I was using that language also and said, you know, you guys really aren't that rebellious. You read your lyrics; they're pretty straightforward, pretty conventional, <laughs> yeah. pretty conservative, actually traditional Christian lyrics. What you are is revolutionary. Mm. Which, which is a different angle. Yeah. And, and I thought that was a good point. And the reason why I think that's important is because people today that might look back on the early 1980s when all of this was happening, our first record came out in 1982, might say, oh, they might look down our nose, their nose at the early Lifesavers and then recover records. Oh, it was Christian cheerleading and bubblegum and stuff like that. But what people may not understand is that we had to do that. We had to be somewhat traditional or conservative in ways to appeal to to bring those people in that might might have, um, you know, otherwise been reluctant to consider punk rock or new wave. Right. So it wasn't to you know in again hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Mm -hmm. You look back and say, oh well, yeah, look at look at the way things lined up, but we didn't know that at the time. We we couldn't have foreseen but that. But you kind of gave you gave in on one a little bit of one thing while you were pushing at the other the musical aspect of it you know the musicality of it you kind of had to balance that i think yeah yeah yes and i know i mean yeah we're not going to get into this a lot but just you know after you and i are not in this christian music anymore will not be again either of us. Um, I, after I got out of Krumbacher, I, I ditched Christian music almost completely. I did go into worship music just because it was a place where I was drawn to because people wanted, sometimes wanted to pay me to do that in a church. So it's like, oh, well, yeah, I can do that, you know, but, but, but even doing that within a couple of years, I was like, no, this is not what I'm going to do. So my next band you know, was not in that, in that, uh, it wasn't Christian music. I made that, I made, I definitely made that a clear thing because I, even in that, even as we were being revolutionary, as you say, I, I still felt very stifled in that band. Uh, um, and I don't know how I, sometimes I'll talk to Steve Krumbacher about it. And he's like, I didn't feel that at all. You I felt it. comfortable there. So, um, but, but, we all have different personalities and we don't like to be settled into one thing. And so, you know, I've, I've journeyed on in my journey as well as I know you have Joe, but, but I look back on that um, with, you know, I, I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't done all of that, as I said yeah, earlier. Everybody goes through their journeys and you, you, you know, you need to take what you learned and you outgrow where you are oftentimes. And, you know, right. it doesn't mean it's, uh, it's not worth, you know, cause it got you to your next place where you were, have your own voice. Sure. Which brings me to the next thing, Joe. I mean, I just felt, I think we all felt like you were always a leader in that scene. Maybe it was your age. Maybe it was just your presence of who you were. I don't know. But um, I know our band definitely felt that. But from there, you went on to start your own record company with Gene Eugene. And how did that transition go for you guys and, and 
Yeah, that's a good question too. So there was around 1985, a convergence of otherwise unrelated events that happened at the same time that, that kind of led us to, to that point. So 1985, we did our first tour of Europe in the summer. And um, that, that tour was a little controversial because I had just become separated from my first marriage. And, and so there was a question, I, I went in and talked to Chuck Smith about it and I said, look, I'm, I'm making myself completely accountable. I'm, I'm in counseling. I, I had actually uh, talked to Randy Stonehill. I picked up the phone and called him out of the blue one day because he was the only other person that I knew in Christian music that had gone through a divorce. And so we had a long conversation. And so there was that, that question of, well, should we send undercover? This is Calvary Chapel that was basically sending us on the six week European tour and financing a lot of it with other co-sponsors, Youth with a Mission and some other organizations. Long story short, we, we end up going. Chuck says, yeah, I, I think you know, you're, you're, you're in the right place. Your head's good. Um, we're gonna go forward with this. And it was a really successful tour. We came back from there though, pretty, pretty much changed people as anybody that's done any traveling knows. You can't, you can't go out of your little bubble without coming back a different person. And, and one of the most important ways that we saw that was the way Christianity is lived overseas and in Europe, especially. It's a different animal than it is here. Um, and, and for me, one of the, the most interesting ways that showed up was in the way they, they freely have a glass of wine or beer. And that was just, you know, blasphemous here back then in the 1980s. But also Europe is much more friendly to things like smoking cigarettes, which I was a smoker. So they smoke. Openly, I remember you know? being in a truck with you and somebody drove by that you recognized and you were like, yeah, and so that's, that's exactly right. And, and there was, and I was never at peace with that. There were people like, like, uh, Glenn Kaiser from Resband, who would, who would say, look, we have an obligation to be examples to the rest of the world. So there's that side. And then there's another side in my head. I'm thinking, well, I think, I, I think I've got an obligation to be who I am and to be truthful about the way I move through the world, not to try to put, put forward this false, you know, uh, facade of, of what a Christian should be, to which I imagine Glenn might say something like, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, Glenn, if you ever hear this, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I imagine he might say something like, well, you shouldn't have been in that position if you're not able to genuinely be that example, to which my answer would be, who's that guy? You, yeah, who, <laughs> who, who's who, that? who can do that? And nobody I that I know. That person. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I have this imaginary conversation with Glenn Kaiser in my head from time to time. So we come back from Europe, changed people. Just around the same time, Chuck had been disillusioned with the Saturday night concerts, Chuck Smith at, at Calvary Chapel. And so he had a major change in direction where he basically shut down the Calvary, the Saturday night concerts to anyone but this, the standard traditional Maranatha bands, meaning Daryl Mansfield was playing there, Benny Hester, none of these new groups that were doing punk and new wave, he just wasn't up for it anymore. Part of that initiative on Chuck Smith's part was 
redirecting Maranatha Music as well, which was owned by Chuck and Calvary Chapel. So uh, Maranatha at the time was owned by, was run by Chuck Smith's nephew, Chuck Fromm, who was in a lot of ways a mentor to me. And uh, really, uh, as I just mentioned earlier, he's the one that pulled us in and said, would you, would you guys like to do a record with us, first independent record? And then we did God Rules and then Boys and Girls. And then it was time to do our next record, which was slated to be branded. And, and he pulled us in and said, look, we're, we're, we're setting you guys free. We're not able to do the record because Chuck it just doesn't want to go that direction anymore. Fair enough. Uh, couple that idea with the fact that I basically came back from Europe thinking, having a lot of my ideas about Christianity challenged and really thinking that, you know, I don't feel like I fit into evangelicalism anymore. I was born and raised Catholic, um, which wasn't a good fit for me either, but it was a religion that I was comfortable with and had pretty deep roots in, having been an altar boy when I was a kid, learning the Mass in Latin before Vatican II. Um, so I, I was homeless religiously for a couple of years after 1985. So we were cut loose from uh, the, the Saturday night concerts and, and Maranatha Music is basically saying, we're not going to do this anymore either and you guys are free to go. Gene, Eugene was our sound man at the time and we just sat down and he said, why don't we do our own label then? It was really <laughs> as simple as that, you know, uh, just wow. as simple as that. Yeah. Ignorance um, of this? <laughs> But we had to, we had to, you know, figure out how we we're going to make this work, and uh, we actually end, did end up going back to Chuck Fromm and saying, uh, "Would you guys like to distribute us?" And they said yes, mm. and that was through Word Records. And if it weren't for that foothold that we had on on the on the industry side, we may not have gotten off the ground at all. But mm. uh, we didn't we didn't even know what we didn't know. I didn't know anything about running a label. I didn't know anything about publishing or financial statements, how to pay royalties, public performance organizations, any of that stuff. Didn't know any of it. But we knew that we were two artists that wanted to make music and we felt that artists should have some control over their artistic and creative direction. And that's what we wanted to do. And Maranatha was willing to distribute us and help us out with some financing. And there we were, 1987. Wow, wow. I didn't know all that part, how that how that all went. Thank you for sharing. I got to tell my part of this story because I was working at I was working with Marie McGilvery booking all of those bands during the summer of '85 when you guys were all in Europe, and we we're trying to book everybody on their tour, little tours on the way home. Her and I just you know I just volunteered for her for for a couple months while I was out of out of school, but I, I very distinctly remember the day that Odin Fong walked in. And he's shaking his head and he said, I just saw Chuck. And he goes, I don't understand the hair. I don't understand the clothes. And Odin, they hadn't ended it yet, but Odin goes, it's over. <laughs> he was just like, he knew, you know, Chuck just had a, he got old, I think, <laughs> you know, like we all do. I don't understand these kids today. I think it was kind of, you know, but anyways, I just remembered that distinctly. Like, what do you mean it's over? No, that's great to know. That's great yeah. to know, Beth. I didn't, I didn't know that. And that's totally sounds like Odin too. Yeah. And he was absolutely right. It was yep. over at that point. Calvary never became yep. a force musically after that outside of worship music. Yep. Yeah. Odin knew. So, 
<laughs> as you guys started this record, you just had to go, you were flying with whatever was coming at you. If you didn't know publishing, all of this stuff, you're, you're just going as you're going. Was, did anybody help you out with that during that time or did you guys just learn it that way? Yes, no, we, we did have help. And, and, and a good thing about having been through the Maranatha system for a few years ahead of starting Broken or Brainstorm was that we knew people like Adele Meisenheimer who now owns Frontline Records and, and, and yeah. she, she was the publishing a director at, at Maranatha. So there were a lot of phone calls to her. Another guy who's not a household name at all, his name is Rick Latendris, uh, was the, the head of finance and accounting at Maranatha Music. And he was helping us, um, you know, with things like royalty statements and financial statements and how to understand that, how to navigate it. And Rick has an interesting story too, because he was actually one of the founding members of the original gospel group, The Way which was a contemporary group to love songs. So, mm -hmm. um, but people like that, we had market. I went, I remember talking to, I, I think it was Buddy Miller, actually. I talked to you about marketing. Um, so we did have mentors that, mm. that, but, but even still it was like cobbling together this understanding yeah. of how the record industry works bit by bit, piece by piece. There was certainly no program like the one I'm teaching at now where, you could go and learn all that stuff in a few semesters, you know? I was just going to say that to our audience. Now, this was before the internet. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Even yeah. books about this were not out there. There weren't yeah. music industry books. Um, you just had to, yeah, you had to find mentors. You had to find somebody. And even, I know, Ojo, as to what you just said, I went to Azusa Pacific University from 1980 to 82, and when I left in 82, one reason I did was because they didn't have a focus towards what I was interested in, in music. And it was vocal music I was taking. I was in all the choirs and all of this stuff. But I I would have loved to have taken some business classes and figured out how, the, how, how to make a record and those kinds of things. There were they probably have... just a few universities doing that around the country at that time. Almost. Right, right. Even yeah, and it is an emerging discipline. It's becoming more popular, and there are quite a few universities and programs now. But there, there's still there's still not a, a lingua franca, as it were, a standard way, standard kind of program where, if you study something like music, well, you know you're going to go into a university's music program, and you're going to study music history and music theory, and and you're going to play in some ensembles and all that stuff, take lessons. But for music industry or music business, it doesn't even have a common name yet. There, there are some schools that offer it in the context of a business school. There are other schools that offer it in a music school, but they don't focus on any of the technology. There are other schools that focus on the technology, but not on the business side. So there's, there's not kind of a one model yet. Um, one thing yeah. I do like about ours is that we are in the music school. So we're music focused. And, and we do focus on the business side, which is mostly my angle. And then my colleague, David Cottrell, focuses on the technology side, mm -hmm. studios and uh, post-production and that kind of stuff. So it is an emerging discipline. I'm happy to be involved in it. Yeah. 
Yeah, kind we of are weird too. That it's in Harrisonburg, Virginia, of all places that you think about, you know, Belmont yeah. and Nashville or somewhere in LA or NYU or something. But here we are in the middle of the Shenandoah Valley somehow. Well, revolution, revolution. Yeah, exactly. And let me say, one of your students, you um, sent me an email or LinkedIn. I can't remember how we connected, but Joseph, um, yeah. you sent him my way. And oh my gosh, when we did we were just talking about the DVD Kickstarter. When we did that, he was doing research for us. He helped us a lot. He helped me with some of my artists, some of my bios. And I was like, man, Joey's a good, a good professor. <laughs> you, you know, you, you, you've got all this in spades. I, I was really excited to work with him. So he's a great so, guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, so on that note, now that you're, you're doing that. So you went through, you had your own record label. You did that with Gene Eugene. You went back to school at some point and yes. undercover still what happened with that and to get you uh, back into college and university. Yeah. Um, that's a good question too. So I come from a family that always kind of valued education. My, my father was a lawyer and my mother had a master's degree in education. She was a high school English teacher. And my younger brother is a, has enough degrees to paper a wall with, but he, he got a, a degree in chemistry, I think his undergrad was, then he went to Claremont and got a master's in art. He got an offer from some museum, I think it might have even been the Smithsonian, to work in art restoration, which would have been a good mix of chemistry and, and painting, which was what he did. He turned that down and instead went to med school at George Washington out here, got an MD. So. Uh, education has always kind of run through my family's veins. And so there was that aspect. There, there also was this nagging idea inside me that, that that was just the way forward for me to think about personal growth and development. That's just something I knew I, knew I was going to need to do. Now, my undergrad is actually in sociology. It's not in business or music. And the reason that I went that route because undercover is touring at this time, brainstorm is going on, but I was divorced by this time and was the custodial father to four kids. And, and so some of the classes that were in the sociology department had to do with family studies, you know, sociology of divorce, sociology of the family, human sexuality, domestic violence, mm. all these, uh, you know, family oriented classes that just captured my uh, intrigue and, and sense of interest and fascination. So I started taking them really just, again, as a matter of personal growth. And uh, when I started going back, uh, for those of you who are thinking of doing such things, I was, I think, in my 30s when I went back. I had done a couple semesters of college right out of high school and was put on academic probation with a 1.94 GPA. So that's the hurdle that's that I had to... Yeah, no, I had to get over that to even be readmitted to the university. And I was readmitted with a 1.9 GPA on academic probation when I was in my 30s. <laughs> but you know, when you go back, it's you really want it. It's not something that you feel like you have to do. It's something that I really need to do this. I was interested in the coursework. I ended up with my BA. I graduated in 94. Um, now, Brainstorm had been in, in business for about seven years by that time, and, and Undercover had, uh, by 94, was kind of winding down a little bit. Uh, Sim had moved to Florida, and 
uh, Jim and I had done the farm album. So there was really just the two of us left in the group. And it, it just, you know, it wasn't the same energy and undercover as there was up, maybe up and up through devotion, let's say. Hmm. And uh, so I, I graduated from college when I was 38 years old and had some great mentors in the business school there because I had a minor in business, major in sociology, and they kept saying, you need to go to grad school, you need to go to grad school. And, and I never really thought of myself as smart enough to have a master's degree, you know, or a <laughs> PhD, even think of myself as, as able to do that. But so I had these mentors that were kind of poking me along, you should go, you need to go to grad school. So I did. Uh, I applied and got accepted to UCLA, and I started immediately after I graduated. So I graduated June of 94 and went right through to UCLA. That was a two-year program, and my thinking then, that's when I, Gene and I parted ways on, on the record label halfway through that in 95. I had grown tired of Christian music. That's a whole other discussion. I had grown tired of running a record label and, and at least at the, at the level we were at and things were changing in, in Christian music anyway. We had left word records of the distributor and signed on with Diamante and that was much, much riskier. And, and some labels have really gotten chewed up through that whole system, but met some great people. And, um, but so anyway, I got out of Christian music in 95, got my graduate degree. And uh, there's, I'm gonna, I'll stop there. There's more to the story, but um, I'll, I'll stop there at that point. But I will say that that was the first time, 1995, when I sold my interest in Brainstorm back to Gene, that I was completely out of music altogether. Mm. Undercover had released Forum that year and that was the end of that for me. Uh, we didn't break the band up, but it just wasn't, wasn't, it didn't have any momentum propelling itself forward. There were no problems with the members. We all love each other. We're all great friends. But so 95 was the first time I was out of Broken. I was out of Brainstorm. I was out of really Undercover wasn't going to do anything. And my career took a whole different path. And and the, the reason why that's important for me metaphysically, if you know you want to use that word, is that I was free of not just Christian music, but the trappings that come along with being involved in that sociology, meaning I didn't have I didn't have to please anybody. I I could say what I wanted, I could live the way I wanted, and it didn't it didn't matter. I didn't care if if I offended, I you're offended? Sorry not sorry, you know, uh, I, I could be authentic, I guess is the real word, because I didn't have to, you know, watch my tongue for a fear of offending any of our audiences or any of the people that might buy our records or the people that might come to our shows. Fuck all that, you know, I, I just didn't have to care anymore. Huh. So that was a pivotal moment. What a freeing, what a freeing time for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I know what that feels like in several ways, <laughs> yeah. several different times in my life. At that point, you were 38? I was 38 when I got my undergrad in 94. Yeah. And then I uh, started right through at UCLA. That was a two-year program. Okay. And, and okay. you know, so being, being able to succeed at UCLA, so I graduated top of my class, 
with wow. two other students had the same GPA, but we all three of us had had the high GPAs, and I was chosen by my classmates to be the speaker for the graduates. So I gave the graduation address at UCLA that that summer, and so to be successful outside the context of anything Christian music related was uh, really important for me personally. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Did you, now you said, okay, so you felt free from all of that. Um, so you weren't in a band. You didn't do any of that for a while. Is that right? Yes. Did you how miss? Long you, how long were you out of music then? Well, okay. So I graduated from UCLA in 96. It was a two-year program. Graduated in 96. When I came out of uh, UCLA, I, I had two job offers right out of the gate. One was vice president of marketing at Word Records. And, and uh, so, you know, and, and this was a fantastic opportunity. I was going to be working with Judith Hibbard and Lauren Ballman and Lauren, uh, Roland Lundy, the president of Word. And my direct wow. boss was going to be Jim Chafee, who was running Murr Records at that point. So I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is pretty cool. Get out of business school and go right into a vice president of marketing job. They flew us out there. In Nashville? It was in Nashville. Oh my gosh. So we're, we're flying out. Oh my. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, were you there, Beth? No. Oh. No, I just know Joe enough to know, like, dude, dude. I'm like, I'm like, I know what happened, but I'm like, dude, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, of course, in hindsight, we know how that ended up, but <laughs> but I'll say this. We I did, you know multiple interviews out in Nashville, got to meet all the people. They felt great about it. I loved them, felt great about the job. They made me an offer. And uh, at the same time, I had this other offer from Southern California Edison in California. And I'm thinking, what the hell do I know about electric <laughs> utilities? I know that you turn the switch and then the light goes on and you plug in your amp and your keyboard rack and it works. But other than that, I don't know a whole lot about it. And Again, going back to my, my business school mentors, I, I called them up and I said, this one, my accounting professor, Ashley, and I laid the whole thing out and she says, look, this is 1996. California had just deregulated its electric industry. She said, this is a fantastic business opportunity. Now Edison has to compete with other providers of electricity because they're no longer a monopoly. It's deregulated. You could be on the ground floor of this um, even if you don't know anything, Edison, the reason they're interested in you is because they need new blood and new thinking to get out of their monolithic mindset of how this business works. So I hide that away in my brain. At the same time, I'm thinking Word Records in Nashville. And I love those people. Jim Chafee was just fantastic. We hit it off right away and uh, just love them all. But I'm thinking, okay, Edison paid more money rather significantly more money. But the real thing came down to what Beth was getting at is I'm custodial father of four kids and I'm, that means rooting them out of school and moving them to Nashville. We had been looking at real estate and everything. And that was you did have that some point, friends, I'm sure you had some friends there, but still. Your kids yeah, didn't. not everyone had gone there though. It was still pretty, yeah. pretty new, but um I ended up saying goodbye to music once again, so that I was burnt out on it. I was just, I had had enough. And 
coming out of business school at UCLA, I mean, the people that I was in that class with, it's a top 10 worldwide MBA program. My, my study partner was the assistant general counsel of Lockheed Martin, whose office was right next door to Pete Conrad's office. And if you don't know who Pete Conrad is, look it up because the dude walked on the moon, okay? <laughs> so I actually went into Pete Conrad's office. I'm seeing moon rocks and all this Apollo's paraphernalia. This was a pretty easy call for me. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of my uh, part the school members at, at UCLA. The, the whole program was filled with high achievers. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. It's just that I'm looking at this one world that's kind of mostly in my rearview mirror versus looking forward uh, to, to, you know, new horizons and personal growth and, and all this stuff. And, and, it, and at the same time, I don't want to lift my kids out of school. I've got my house in California. We just decided to stay. So again, a very pivotal moment in terms of my direction. Your question was, when did I get back into music though? <laughs> I took the job at Edison and I was there from 96 till uh, Gene died in 2000. So four years, I get a phone call. Uh, you know, Gene died. And then uh, Dan Michaels, who, of course, from the choir, uh, suggests putting together a, a package of concerts to play at Cornerstone that summer for a tribute to Gene. Cornerstone agreed. And, and so Undercover got back together, the original members, Sim, Jim, Gary, and I, not the original, but the, you know, the classic lineup. And, and we went to Chicago and played that gig. Um, and again, this, this convergences of unrelated events. That was also the year that 9-11 happened. 2001, I think it was, or, or 2000, something like that. 2001. 2001. So it was shortly after the, the Cornerstone appearance. Around that same time, Edison was splitting off my division, the, the division that I was working for. I had risen to the, to the rank of director of finance at that point at Edison. The company that bought us was located in, I think, Denver, Colorado, and they flew us out to Denver to help them transition the finances and the financial systems and all that stuff and offered me a job. Do I want to move to Denver? No. <laughs> I, I worked for Edison and, okay, been there, done that, and no, I'm done. I want to stay in California. Me and Jim built our studio. We recorded I Rose Falling. And, and um, when Edison split off my division, I'm kind of like, okay, well, where do I go from here? What do I do now? I don't have any sense of where I should go next. I don't want to go to Denver. I call the, the director of HR at Edison. I say, talking about this, and she says, you know, look, I, I was a director, so I had golden handcuffs and golden parachutes. Uh, so they, I had enough money to live on for a while. She says, why don't you just take some time off and figure it out for a while. You can do that. Give yourself that luxury. Mm. She says, why don't you take a class or something <laughs> to your comment about having been in school forever. <laughs> but you know, so I, I went back now it had been, I'd been out of UCLA for four years and six since I had graduated from Cal State, but I picked up the catalog and I, I thought I wanted to take a music class. I took a music theory class and a music history class. 
And that's all I was going to do for that semester, the fall semester of 2001, right after 9-11, because the job market was in the shitter anyway. You know, if you were looking for a job during that whole no-fly era, you know, right after 9-11, yeah. you were uh, shit out of luck. Mm -hmm. So I took, I, I just decided I'm going to take these two classes. And oh my God, it was like finding myself all over again. Wow. Of course I belong here. Of course, this is what yeah. I should be doing. Of course, this is who I am. And, and so thus started my five-year journey to my master's of music in composition and theory. Awesome. That was, it's, we did a reunion show, which we talked about before we, we turned on record on this podcast in 2005. So you were just, were you just finishing that or yeah, with all of the bands that Joey had talked about from the beginning and that really, once again, helped set, send Beth and I on a journey into a little yeah, side we business. Started, and we promoted that and leaving and a concert. Don, Don handed me a book on, on the music business in 2005. I remember sitting at the beach learning because I had gone to school, like you had talked about earlier, you know, there wasn't really any kind of school that encompassed everything. But where I went was, was kind of a good idea. It was Dick Grove School of Music. Yeah. Where I studied recording engineering, what where I, what I sucked at, I was terrible at it. But every time there was a business class, I was like, you know, I was the only one awake at the end of the class. But it was like a microcosm because they had, you know, they kind of threw everybody in there, and you had a little studio, and you had to vie for the studio time. So you had to, you know, I learned to bring brownies to the guys that had the book to sign up in. You know, you kind of had to get find guitar players and stuff like that. It was a little microcosm. But I didn't learn that much about the business. But you know, there there was a book. you learn by making mistakes. When we've done that. You know, um, I was falling. I hate to cite my own album, but I mm -hmm. was falling, you know, and, or Shel Silverstein falling up. Is he, he the guy that did mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. yes, yes. We, we, we absolutely do learn by failures. And, yeah. and so good for you. And, and I, I don't, I forward. do not, what's that? And keep moving forward. Yes. We don't, we don't, you know, grovel in it or anything, but I also don't think that, uh, that a college degree is is absolutely necessary for anybody it was my path mm -hmm. and and it's been the right path for me but uh, i i have of course we all know tons of people that are really hugely successful or uh, in, in as they define it without college experience at all i don't ever regret it i've spent a lot of time there and and for me i need that structured learning and i need to be around people that are smarter than me and mentor that are able to mentor me and pull me along you know, I just, I was watching, Wendy and I were watching The Red Violin the other night with uh, music by John Corleano. And it yeah. turns out that my composition teacher had knew John Corleano. And so yeah. I was telling her these stories of, you know, yeah. so th th I need that in my life, you know, that those kinds yeah. of people that I, I need to work up, mm -hmm. you know, kind of right. strive for, around the, the people that, that. So while you're taking, while you're getting your master's in music, um, was it during that time or right after that that you started teaching at uh, Fullerton? Well, that, okay, so uh, my composition teacher, may he rest in peace, and I actually became really great friends because I start, started that program, I think it was right after 9-11, so 2001. In fact, I was in a music theory class when the first tower was hit. Uh, so it's 2001. I graduated in 2007. So I, I didn't have... I didn't have an undergrad in music, 
And I didn't go into this thinking that, oh, I'm going to get a master's degree in music. Remember, I took those two classes just because, hmm. because, mm-hmm. why not? Right. And, and then I found myself there and decided to take another class and then another class and then another class. Before I know it, I was like, I want to take them all. I want to take every <laughs> fucking class that they have, you know? And you guys can bleep me out. I'm guessing. Yeah, that's right. but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, so I just kept taking classes and it turns out that, and I, and I was in my fifties, I think at the time. Yeah. So 2001, I, no, I was 45. I was 45. I was huh. 52 when I graduated. So I'm older than some of my professors at this point. And, and my composition teacher was just a few years older than me. So these were not just lessons. These were life-changing conversations about the, the what music is like. And, and he was telling me about his experiences. And I'm meeting people that, I'm meeting composers that have changed the direction of music, not, not just Christian music, changed the direction of music, yeah. period. You know, the music will never yeah. be the same because of these people. And here I am working with them. Wow. So that, that's pretty great. Um, somewhere along the line, it was, it was, uh, so I had to make up, I had, I needed 30 upper division music classes, all of which had prerequisites before I could even apply into the master's program, which uh-huh. was then another 30 units plus recitals and all that stuff. Good Lord. But I didn't care. I, I was I didn't need the degree. I already had an MBA. I already had undercover and the label in my rearview mirror. I already have an MBA from UCLA. I had been director of finance at a Fortune 50 company. It's good enough, you know. But the, but this was like this was not for any of that. This was because this is what I needed to do for me. I needed to fall in love with music again and 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 learn how to be a better musician. So my composition teacher, Lloyd Rogers, he said, well, you're on the slow boat to Mazatlan, just relax and enjoy the ride. So it was a six year journey to take all those classes and earn all those units and, and, and go through the, the uh, rigor of recitals and lessons and juries and all that stuff, which I did. A year or so before I graduated, uh, my musicology professor, who I'm still in touch with, comes up to me and says, look, You've got an MBA, so you're already qualified to teach at the university level. You've got all this experience in your band. You're about to have a second master's degree. And we've got this class here called the business of music that nobody's teaching because nobody knows it. <laughs> Are you interested in teaching it? And I had never taught before, you know? Uh, so I said, well, you know, one thing I've learned in my career is you say yes and figure it out later. Okay. Yep. So sure, I'll do that. How am I going to do that? You know, uh, <laughs> but I did it and, and, and did that for two semesters. And then I graduated. And right before I graduated, that same musicology professor comes up to me and he says, hey, um, I just saw this job opening for a, a, a teaching gig in, in Virginia, this James Madison University. He's, he, I'm reading the description. It sounds exactly like you here. And he gives it to me and I read it. And it did sound exactly like me. I'm at the end of this program and I'm thinking, where do I go from here? What do I do with this? Okay, I've got an MBA and an MM. Maybe Disney Studios will find that valuable or some movie studio. I can go to maybe stay on the artistic side, but I've got the management thing going too. And so I'm thinking about all this stuff. Never really thought of myself as a university professor. 
but just on a whim, sure, why not throw my hat in the ring? Called a friend by the name of Preston Jones, who's a history professor at John Brown University in Arkansas, who has a PhD in history and met his wife at an undercover concert at the Redlands Bowl from Rock of Love. <laughs> so um, he had written a book with the lead singer from Bad Religion. He contacted me. I didn't know Preston at the time. He contacts me and says, yeah, I've got this book with the lead singer, Bad Religion, and we talk about you in it. And I just thought you might want a copy. And I said, sure, send me one. Sends me one. I read it. And Preston and I then start this friendship over time. I call him up and I say, Preston, I, I've got this job opening in Virginia that I'm thinking of putting in for. But they need an academic CV, not just a resume. It's a whole different animal. So he walks me through how to put that together. I put it together over a week or so, send in my application, list five or six references on, on the letter. A couple of days later, I get a phone call from Rob Watson, the keyboard player, who was one of my references. And he says, hey, I just want you to know that I just got a phone call from this James Madison University or something. They want to know all about you. <laughs> They hadn't even called me to say that they that they were considering me interviewing me, but they were calling my references. So, uh, but anyway, it, the rest is history. They, it was it was a perfect fit for them, and it was a, a you know as I said, it sound, they were looking for somebody just like me, but it's in Virginia. Mm. Anyway, that's so that's the story of so how it started. Obviously, yes, we know we know you took the job. Yes. Um, <laughs> the job this is your life part of your life's work yeah, so it's a mission it, yeah it really is yes that's what i wanted to ask you about i know because one of the things that beth and i are doing now the podcasting the i mentioned the uh lunch and listens that we have i even though sometimes i'm stressed out by these things or whatever is happening it is it is absolutely my passion to talk to people about their music and tell them how they can move forward and get better. And so that I have that in me. And so I know you have that in you because I've even, before we did this interview, I just did some Googling and I saw some of your students, um, you know, comments on your class and they're either all fives or they're <laughs> low because they don't like to work hard. <laughs> It was the yeah. best class. I read some of those too. It was the best class I ever took. And then yeah. you'll get like five of those and then you'll get one going like, this was supposed to be fun for me. <laughs> this was a fun <laughs> class I wanted to take and he's a hard professor. Yeah. No, but, but I know I know also that you are fun and your stories are great. But tell me a little bit about now you get you get to JMU. Um, you, you just called it your life's mission. So um, I know I know that that you're very passionate about this. Tell me a little bit about what excites you about doing that and how how you see results from that. Yeah, that's a good question. There, there's, um, you know, I didn't see myself doing this and I didn't prepare for it. And I see people that, that prepare for, for such careers. And uh, I'm lucky in the sense that my experience in undercover and running a label has, has been extremely valuable to, to my students. 
versus if I had just gone through to get a PhD and then then start teaching without having done any of it. Mm -hmm. uh, just they, they find that very valuable. Morton Feldman, the composer, talked about teachers teaching teachers to teach teachers, something, mm -hmm. something along that line. And, and academia can be that, if, especially at the higher levels of you know, graduate programs and so on. But so there was a big learning curve for me to, to learn how to be, how to be a, a good teacher and professor, because you have to do that within a certain structure and framework. Hmm. things like assessment testing and things like advising that you know besides knowing about the content of what you're teaching you have to know all, all this other stuff too so that's I, you know I, I i haven't really thought about how to answer that aspect of the question but i'll say this that almost immediately my director saw potential in me at the time and that's made a, a big difference in my world too, that he said, you're gonna be a fine teacher. And I, I started, you know, going in, I was intimidated. I was, uh, can I do this? I had a lot of self doubt and, oh my God, you want me to teach legal aspects of the music industry? What do I know about that? <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. And then I would think, well, wait a minute, how many record contracts have I put together? And yeah. how many publishing deals? and you know, you start thinking about what you've actually done, which you just take for granted about your own life and realize that, okay, I know a few things and I've got the education for, for the theory side of it. Um, once you give yourself permission to be good at something, it changes the landscape and it changes your confidence and the students respond to that. The, the biggest difference for me has been about the results in their life. Not so much what it's done for me and whether I'm a good teacher or not. I never read those websites that you guys are talking about, whether I never read them. I can't do that. Yeah. Um, but what I do see is former students that are now intellectual property attorneys in New York City, in Los Angeles, that are talent agency agents that you know, CAA and William Morris. And I, I see, I have another former student that is now director of copyrights at Universal Music Group and out in uh, New York City. I have a songwriting student that you guys may have seen posts that I've made on Facebook. They're signed to Atlantic Records. And um, until the pandemic, we're, we're just touring madly, playing all the big festivals and stuff. So and, and you know they have they they also maintain the connection. So those two students that I just mentioned, the songwriting guys, Jeff Gorman, they're from a group called Illiterate Light. If anyone wants to look them up, NPR is all over them. They're just fantastic. They come back to JMU every semester and ask, "Can I come and talk to your songwriting students?" Because they were there in that seat themselves, you know, and and yeah. they know how important it is. So those are the things that that make make it worthwhile. It's not about having a job. It's not about a career. It's not even about music because, you know, some things are bigger than music. And it really is about how do I help these students? How do I midwife them actually in a sense? Because a lot of them are here never having lived away from home before. They come out of high school, right into college. So, so there's that aspect, how to adult. 
And then there's this other aspect of they love music and, and how do I help them be successful? How can I give them the tools, but not just the tools, the wisdom? Um, how, not just how do I teach them the art, but how do I help them think like artists? Mm. And how do I, you know, so it, it, the, the whole, whole focus changes away. It's like giving something back to the world. It's not about getting my paycheck or, you know, having the whatever status there might be associated with being a professor or whatever. It's really all about, you know, I, we all want to make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And I make my difference in the world by make, trying to make a difference in their world. And then they go out. And, and, and from that point on, God, who knows? The, the sky is the limit over the impact or the ripples that you've sent through, right. you know, maybe 50 years after my white ass is in the ground, um, some of these students will say, hey, I had this professor once, and you know what he said? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, just like you're doing right now, remembering your professors and people that have influenced yeah, exa exactly. you. Exactly. And and we all stand and, on the shoulders of giants yeah as you mentioned earlier you, you didn't really go into it but what what is that quote about people who who can't do teach or something which is not always true no it's not true either no uh, it's not true but it, but it's it's one of those negative slams out there about professors and teachers but you of all people as a professor have really lived all of these you know as a musician as an artist as a songwriter record label owner. I mean, you've been through it. And um, I, this is one of the reasons I, I know why you're such a great professor, because you have the wisdom and the life experience of that, as well as the knowledge. So you, uh, in your music history class, I was reading some of the comments from students who were saying you, it, you do it in a very interesting way, because when Don was, went to school, it was a music history class and Beethoven was born and Mozart was born and that kinds of music history is what people think about it. But in reading the comments from some of your students, your music history class is very unique. It, it reminded me of what you were talking about earlier with, with uh, Jim, how you would sit down and dissect and learn this song, you know, and then figure out who influenced that. And it sounds like your music history class is very in-depth. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that? Because it sounds very different than most music history classes. Yeah, well, it's it's a it's it's a history of rock class, so it's not um, awesome. you know it's not a general it's it's a focused class on on the history of rock and and it's only fifteen weeks the semester fifteen or sixteen weeks. The first semester I taught it, it was an absolute disaster. There are <laughs> three hundred and something students in the class. So I'm in an auditorium, basically teaching in a well, like you'd see in a movie. Really, is kind of out of a movie. And the same musicology professor that turned me on to that job that actually got me started teaching said, "Well, by the way, here's a great textbook that you want to consider using for that class." Well, the textbook was fantastic if you were a music major, but this class was for the whole. It was a general education elective, basically, mm -hmm. um, so anyone could sign up for it. And, and, and I taught it as a music class, which was a big mistake. And, and I got hammered for it in my evaluations. Because the students don't know, a lot of them didn't know about music. So um, that class is only offered once a year. So the following year, I, I totally changed direction and taught it more as, from a sociological point of view. So a social history of the class, 
focusing more on current events, the Vietnam War, the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther King and the Freedom Rides, and then, you know, the 1970s and the era of excess and new wave and punk and, and all those developments rather than talking about what wins what's a blues scale for example or uh you know those kinds of things for here's a 12 bar blues they don't care about that but but um to put the music that they all know and love into some social psychosocial context was was very important to them and and then to bring a little bit of experience i'll, I'll give you one example as you get a little mini lesson kind of one like i do um, in the class when we talk about the Beatles and the importance of the Revolver album, which arguably is more important than Sgt. Pepper. But at any rate, there's, there's the song Tomorrow Never Knows on it, which from a musical point of view is just fantastic because Paul McCartney plays a C the whole time. There's, there's one note in the song, C, the whole time. Ringo Starr does the same little drum beat the whole time. It's an eight-bar phrase that repeats nine times. Each verse has one line and one and a refrain, and it repeats nine times. Two or three of those nine, though, are instrumental. And if you know the song, you hear all those tape loops going on with George Martin and Jeff Emmerich had no, this is long before sampling was, was available. So when they made tape loops, they had to actually make physical tape loops and string them up on tape recorders. And some of those tape loops might have been three feet long. Some might be six feet, seven feet, three and a half feet long, 18 inches long. And, and so there was no way to string them up on a take up loop. So they would put pencils or cups wrap the tape around so that they could pull back and create the tension necessary for the motors to run and wow. drag the tape across the heads <laughs> and and so you, and then I, I actually play them the isolated loops mm. and then you think about john lennon's vocal he his vision for that song was he wanted to be the dalai lama flying through the valley mountains and mountains in the valleys singing the song which was lyrics taken from the tibetan book of the dead and and uh, and and um, Timothy Leary's writings and stuff like that. That so Jeff Emmerich, the engineer on that record, had to figure out how am I going to, in God's name, simulate John Lennon flying through the mountains, echoing the Dalai Lama. Well, the closest he could come was run was running John Lennon's vocal through a Leslie cabinet, a Leslie speaker. So. I've got this video with which George Martin's son Giles talking about a Leslie speaker and how it works. And you've got the one speaker pointing down and the other one pointing up and there's rotors turning at different speeds. And, and then I talk about the Leslie and how important that was to later, you know, the Hammond organ and Deep Purple and Steppenwolf and, and, and away you go. Well, you're not gonna find all that shit in the textbook, okay? Um, so you've gotta have a, an understanding of what a Leslie speaker was actually like. <laughs> You have to have lifted one up a flight of stairs a few times, which I've done. <laughs> and know how to mic it up and all the stuff. So I, you know, you bring that kind of experience to these classes, uh, and it just adds a level of depth. When I'm explaining that story, which takes up a whole class, you guys got the thumbnail version. Yeah, they're like their eyes are are like deer in headlights 
biggest saucers, understanding how the song was put together. It's two and a half minutes of music that completely changed the course of popular music forever. Mm, and the way they had no idea. No idea. No idea. At all. idea. Some of these kids don't even know who John Lennon was. Oh, no, no. Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. You, you tell me next time I'll get on a plane, come whoop their butt. You tell me next time. What happens? Jeez. No, it's okay. so anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a very fun, very fun class to teach. Wow. And, uh, and and the more you can make it personal, and things like you know, you talk about Rick Griffin and the acid rock of the 1960s, late 60s, and the Summer of Love, and all those Jimi Hendrix posters and Bill Graham concerts at the Fillmore. Oh, and by the way, Rick Griffin did the God Rules lettering on our album cover. And I've got this book that I actually showed them. He autographed it for me. And, and um, <laughs> you know, I, I walked them through the book that's got all these classic Grateful Dead album covers, Janis Joplin posters, Jimi Hendrix at the Fillmore and Big Brother and the Holding Company, all this great work. I mean, Rick Griffin did the Rolling Stone magazine logo for crying out loud. Huh. So, uh, you know, you bring this to them and that's just not something you can get in out of a textbook, like I said, or no. it's just not experience that you're gonna get. Is it a texture, like it's real yeah. to them? Yes, yeah. I was gonna say, if there's ever a time in our history that we need these kinds of classes, it's now. <laughs> because we are going through a time in our history that so many thought, wait, we tackled that, we got that done, but we have not done that especially as Americans. So to, for you to bring all of this social, uh, you know, these social times and things into and explaining how the music was created as well, that's just incredible. It's incredible. I love it. Yeah, because, you know, back when he was in his 30s taking sociology classes. Right. Uh, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs talked about you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the right. dots looking backwards. And, right. and that's true. Yep. Everything, you know, to your point earlier, Don, about everything that we've been through makes us who we are today. Uh, I don't regret doing any, any, you know, I, I do in a way, but I, I mean, not regret, but would have done things differently if I knew then what I knew now kind of thing, yeah, you know, yes. but I don't have many regrets about my music career. And I consider myself pretty damn lucky to have done some of the things that I've done. But, but you're right, when you, when you talk about it is almost uncanny when you look at civil rights legislation in 1964, the Detroit race riots, the Rodney King problem, the, the um, travesty, it's not a problem, the, the, the whole Rodney King thing, the O.J. Simpson thing. I, I was just last night uploading the most recent lecture to the history of rock class, which I'm teaching now on, on that era. And part of that lecture as it's been every year, is Creedence Clearwater Revival. They played at Woodstock, had a whole string of hits. A lot of those hits were protest-oriented, including Fortunate Son. And um, sure enough, it's right in the middle of the Fogarty is in the news again, saying, hey, Donald Trump is using this song without permission. Whatever your feelings are on politics, I'm not going there, I'm just saying. Donald Trump is using that song and John Fogarty is pissed copyright. off about it. You know, <laughs> you're violating the law, sent yeah. in a cease and desist order. And I, I told my class, again, I, 
you know, whatever your views on, on whatever side you're on, it's just fascinating that here we are 60 years later or 50 years later, and John Fogarty is still in the middle of protest, you know? Right. Uh, I, I, for the longest time, had told my class, where, where is our outrage as a country when, when we see, even before all these crazy times we're in now, where is our outrage? Where, has, where is our voice as a country that, uh, that, that we would suffer some of the injustices that we see on a daily, ongoing, regular basis? Are, are, are we so anesthetized by media and social media and different forms of media? And, you know, it's almost as if the Iraq war was entertainment, the latest football game that once Saddam Hussein was overthrown, okay, we can go back to life. In the meantime, soldiers lose their limbs and their lives and their families years after trying to finish that off, clean up the mess. And, and you know, again, whatever your views are on that, it's not what I'm talking about. It's the idea that music has historically had such a powerful prophetic voice, if I can use that word. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, and it's kind of finding itself yet again in these times. And, uh, and I'm also, I'll tie this into an earlier theme too, how, why it's so nice to be free of any Christian music trappings is that a lot of Christian artists, I feel, have had to neuter themselves for fear of losing their audience. And in, on one hand, I can't say that I blame them because this is how they pay their rent, okay? So they can't afford to cut themselves off. But in what world was, was it ever the intention that, that we have an art form, if you will, that is focused on a religion that would pay us a living wage and that that living wage would be jeopardized by someone expressing their own moral um, leanings or ethical position. Again, well, no matter what side you're on, no matter what side you're on. Even. What's that? Or weaknesses, hum their own humanity. Yes. Yeah. Can't you still, you know, you were talking about earlier about how you could, you had to hide your cigarettes, you couldn't drink, you could in the 80s. And you still can't, you know, I know many of the people you're speaking of, yeah. you know, who get just grief for just being a human being, as if they're supposed to be perfect and all of that. It's sad that it's still that way. I, yeah. I have a question. Do you see in the music, you know, the 60s, 70s, that music was so... You know, my kids were just talking about CCR and John Fogarty the other day. Um, but uh, can, I, can I interject? Because it's just running through my head. My first favorite band was Chicago. And they were in the midst of this too. And some of their songs, It Better End Soon, My Friend. Many, many of their songs. I was a young child listening to this. I started listening to them maybe 11, 12. And I didn't really understand what they were talking about yet. But I totally do now. Yeah. But yeah. And so so there were so many bands at that time that were doing this music and at those rallies and, and trying to. But anyway, go ahead, Beth. Keep going. Well, my question is, because it kind of plays into Don's last question, is where do you see the music industry going? I'd like to kind of focus that on. Do you see that 
now in the music industry? Is that happening, that social, and I don't mean like just loud and obnoxious or contrary, which to me feels like sometimes that's all that is, but is there that depth, you know, because there was such a depth to those lyrics and those, you know, it wasn't just, I disagree with you. It was coming out of emotion and what they were. It was coming out of emotion, but it was art, it was artfully done and not just screaming, which is part of society's problem right now, but um, do you see that as as being out there as happening or or where do you see the music industry where it is right now in that social order and also where it's headed? You really want to get me in trouble, don't you? No, no, no. Oh. I don't. <laughs> talking about politics. It's a good I question. Want to talk about and, music. Okay, look, most most artists are, are going to be on the more progressive side of things. So mm -hmm. we just have to go in with that understanding. But that's not true in every musical sociology. So you've got the country audiences, for example, that that are, are much more conservative. And and for so group, groups like the formerly known as the, the Dixie, Dixie Chicks, who've now changed their name, um, pay for that, for their points of view with their careers, you know, in a sense. And so there is that, they're out there. Uh, you've got Kid Rock on the right-hand side of things. And I don't even want to bring up the other guy, Ted Nugent, but um, there, there are others. People that are part of that sociology, I should have mentioned Chris Stapleton earlier because uh, talk about a guy who's a, on top of the musical world. His manager is a former student. His manager was a uh, graduate of JMU's music industry program and, uh, and, and became Corin Capshaw's right-hand man, who Corin Capshaw was, is the owner and founder of Red Light Management, one of the biggest management companies in the world. So, um, but Chris Stapleton has come out and expressed his views openly as well and, and is paying for it. You know, there's that stay in your lane argument. Well, I, I have students, we, we have this discussion I'm teaching artist management right now. And I've had students that say, artists should stay in their lane. They don't, we don't wanna hear their political views. I can't imagine that coming out in the 1960s. I can't imagine that argument holding any sway in the 1960s at all. But having said that, how, how are we to think about music as, as you mentioned, Beth? I, I've told my classes, and this is just me talking off the top of my head. I don't know if there's anything to this at all. But the role of profit in these days seems to, the mantle seems to have moved from music to athletics. Mm. You think of Doc Rivers, think of LeBron James, and you think of Colin Kaepernick, and you think of, uh, what's the girl's name on the soccer team? The, the people that, that um, you know, who, who are really the yeah. most potent voices just in terms of injecting that those messages in, into popular culture. I don't know what to say, Beth. Do I see it happening in music? No, not like it did then. Okay, because I, I don't, I don't, and I'm just wondering if I'm just out of it. No, <laughs> just, you know, you've there got the rage against the machine folks. Right, and all right, that, yeah, but I'm like, where are the voices? I'm like, where's Moses? Where's, you know, where's the guys? Because we're going oh. back to the and okay. like, I will say something to that being being involved with writers being a songwriter myself doing it in the 90s as a 90s songwriter it was okay for me to be rebellious and I did do that because 
I was so frustrated by the industry that I had just come out of the Christian music industry that I had things to say and I wanted to, and I didn't care who heard it. But even now, if I was to do that, everything feels a bit more like, uh oh, if I do that, what's that person going to say? Or I don't want to deal with this. And I think our climate may, may pour into that where an artist, as you said, Joey, you, you've got these managers saying, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. So I, I just feel like those in the sixties, maybe they didn't even know yet those musicians that it was going to do something to their. But in the, in the same time, we have these shockingly sexual or this or that things where it's almost like we're going to shock you by how, Uh, whatever we are, but you don't have the thoughtful, you know, so you can do that one and everybody's just like shocked because that sometimes sells, I guess. But it, it, it bothers me on a very, on a very, uh, I have three boys and I always say to them, I don't know what music you're going to have. <laughs> I don't know what music you're going to have to look back on like I do, you right. know? And I, I, I hope you have the John Fogarty's and the, C- you know, and the Beatles oh. and the Beach Boys and things that were, you know, yeah. and then the guys that were just, you know, the Eagles and just all, some of them were more loud about their politics in an overt way, sometimes it's very subtle. And I just don't know. I'm just like, am I missing it? That's what I keep saying. Am I missing it? <laughs> or is it just not really happening? It it's, it's a different world. Right yeah. Now. I mean, yeah. part of it is the fragmentation think, of music. You know, the, the, the uh, right, right. Like my students bring up artists that are on the top of the charts that I've never even heard of. I don't even know who they are. Yeah. And, and that's another reason I'm grateful for my job, but it's possible to, to be involved, immersed into a whole wing of the music industry and not know anything about what's going on over here. Right. So that wasn't the case in the 1960s and That's 70s. True. So, so we've got that to deal with. Second, technology is altogether different too. We can make records in our own living room. We're not dependent on record labels. So um, Don, you couldn't, if you were to speak back in 1990, you had ran the risk of having your shows canceled and losing your record deal. Today, it's like big fucking deal. I'll make my own record the way I want to make my record. And, and, and I don't need you to release it for me. I'll release it right. here in my, in my office. And, mm. you know, um, so it, it's a new frontier in that, in that respect. It's just, you know, I, there's another aspect of it that, that music may pop music, and I've talked about this before too, maybe it's a mature industry. Maybe it's gutless anymore. You know, maybe right. maybe, right. maybe there aren't gonna be any more, you know, John Fogarty's or Jimi Hendrix national anthems or, you know, right. we, we can point to some artists and uh, there's always gonna be great songs. There's always gonna be, but, but will it have, will we ever recreate that time? I don't, yeah. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I think you're right about the technology aspect of it because my children listen to things I've never heard of and they listen to things that do speak to them about social things that are happening and I don't listen to that music so it maybe it is happening we're just all you know we're old from the 70s (laughs) our kids our kids have grown up differently than we have you know they grew up wired they grew up plugged in and connected right and And they find what they're looking for they find yeah. it. It doesn't come to them. It always came to me. I turned on my radio and there it was. 
radio what a quaint idea <laughs> <laughs> well you know we're we're going long which is i knew we would because joe has so much to bring to the table and on that note we are going to bring him back i've been talking about doing some songwriting either podcast and or classes where we can get some some people in because i know joe you have a songwriting class as well or composition where you talk about uh how songs are are made and and just different lyricists and things i've always been intrigued by that and um so we'll bring you back another time if you will um we are always happy to come and and guest at your class as well once you're back in so anytime um I want to say three times during this, I counted, you said rest in peace about someone who's gone. And I may get emotional here if I keep going, but I just want to say, Joey, that I love you. You're one of my favorite people on earth. And I, it's never, you should always do that in your life because um, we are at an age where we are losing friends and um, you know, our times are different right now, even with what's going on in our world. And, you know, you never know when your friends are not going to be there anymore. So, oh, I hope I'm not being prophetic here myself. But anyway, um, well, I just, I know, let's knock. I just want to go so you guys can hang out. I'll go. I'll be the, I'll be the one. No, no. Yeah. So um, anyway, we, we thank you so much for being here today, Joe. Um, and we will have him back. Please look him up. Take his classes. If you're a student, consider JMU. Um, if you're going into music, because I think it's a great program. And um, remember to go to amatterofmusic.com. You will find other things there and resources for yourself. And we sure thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for that. And uh, you two are both some of my favorite people as well. And as long as we've got breath, you know, here we are. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Joe.